Welcome to the Anchor Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help you grow in your walk with the Lord by an in-depth study of the Word of God. So grab your Bible and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with today's message. Hi, everyone, and happy Resurrection Day. He is risen. He is risen indeed. And I know things are a little strange this year with us not meeting, but we have decided just to keep rolling through things and videotape our Resurrection Day services. So we're glad you can join us. And so if you have your Bibles, what I'd like you to do is turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to look today at what the Apostle Paul said about the resurrection. And we're going to focus in on that and the implications and what it entails and applies to our lives. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to start in verse 3. We're going to go through some of the chapter. The chapter is very long. So we're going to, at the end, just kind of skip a few verses and deal with some of the issues that Paul is talking about, just for the sake of time, because this is a heavy chapter on the resurrection, and it's an important chapter. A lot of doctrine is built on this. So anyway, Dr. Walter Martin, in his book, Essential Christianity, once asked, what was the central truth of the early apostles' preaching? What was the stimulus to the miraculous growth of the early church? What was the energizing force which spread the gospel across the face of the earth? Well, these questions posed by all find their answer in the singular event of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He is risen was the victory cry of the early Christians as they spread the message of Christ's bodily resurrection to the ends of the earth. And Dr. Walter Martin was right. That's what caught the attention of the world back then and is catching the attention of the world now, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Well, the resurrection of the Messiah is one of the foundation stones of Christianity. It is not part of what the secular world calls a Christian myth that gives people a way of handling life and or that people are not tough enough and they have to have a crutch to hang on to some false hope in this life. No, it is a fact of history. It is objective. It is verifiable. It has evidence. So this is why this doctrine, obviously, has been attacked so viciously by Satan and the unbelievers of this world, the secularists, the atheists, the agnostics. They all have attacked this one because this is a critical doctrine, uh, the resurrection of our Lord. See, without the resurrection, salvation can't be provided to us. Sin cannot be eliminated, and eternal life cannot be given to us if Christ is not resurrected. So in many ways, the resurrection is like the law of gravity. You don't have to believe that the law of gravity is true for it to be true. It is true, whether you believe it or not. The best way to understand gravity is to pretend that it doesn't exist and stand on your roof at home and decide that it doesn't exist and then you do your best Superman and jump. And what will happen is you will find out very quickly that regardless of you believing in gravity or not, it does exist. And the same is true for the resurrection of the Messiah. It's a fact of history. The evidence is there. And regardless if you believe it or not, it happened. But what Paul's going to go through in this text with us is that the consequences of not believing in the resurrection are very dire. And he was having a problem with some of the Corinth church not believing in the general resurrection. So let me give you the setting a little bit. He's talking to the Corinth church, and many of these new converts still had leftovers from their Greek philosophy, from like Plato, And they held to kind of an afterlife that retained a dualistic view of human nature. And to make sense of where they're coming from, they believed that humans had two parts, obviously physical and immaterial. In their worldview, the physical was bad. The body was bad. And so they didn't care really morally what they did with their body because what they did in their body didn't affect their soul. This is why Paul had such a hard time with the Corinth church about immorality, particularly sexual immorality, because to them, it didn't matter. The body was bad anyway, so you could use it any way you want. The soul was valuable, and the soul was shackled to the body. So the physical world and the physical body was less in value. So when a person died from the Greek mindset, it was like a snake shedding its skin. The soul would shed its body, 
but continue to live in spirit form in the afterlife and never regaining physicality ever again. And so the idea of a resurrected body to the Greeks was simply repugnant. They didn't like it. They didn't accept it. They had a hard time with the resurrection. Now, let me make this note. They didn't deny that Christ had risen from the dead, nor did they deny a bodily resurrection of him. But in their minds, they thought that was unique. And the fact that it was unique to him, but it's not unique to us. That even if we were believers, we would not be physically resurrected. So they had this kind of thought that was wrong. But Paul went on to say, as you'll see, he's going to illustrate to them, if you don't believe in the general resurrection of believers, well, there's some major implications that will follow if you do not believe in the physical general resurrection of believers. And so everything hinges on the resurrection of the Messiah. So if you and I are supposed to be resurrected physically, that hinges on the physical resurrection of the Messiah. And for some reason, the Corinth church wasn't linking the two. So Paul's going to go into explaining that you can't have one without the other. And if one did happen, then the other should follow. So anyway, let's jump into the text. We'll start in verse 3 and go into Paul's argumentation about the resurrection. He says this, For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received. And what Paul is doing, he's going to do a little apologetics with them about the evidential history of the physical resurrection that uh, it's not some type of event that requires us to take a blind leap into a dark chasm, but that this faith in the resurrection of Messiah is evidential and has facts behind it. And the first body of evidence that Paul is going to present to the Corinth church is the witness of prophecy in scriptures. He says he received this information, and it was direct revelation, perhaps from the Messiah himself, because we've got to remember, when Paul got saved, he went to Arabia for three years. And out there in Arabia, he says in Galatians that he was taught personally by the Messiah himself. And it also could be drawn on other earlier recorded documents from the apostles. We're not quite sure, but we did know that Messiah taught Paul directly. It wasn't just simply the Damascus experience that he had. He had further revelation from the Messiah. So now Paul is going to go into explaining the gospel which is predicted by the scriptures, okay? And so the first thing he says, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Okay, so that was predicted that the Messiah would die. And so the idea was, this is the first leg of the stool of the gospel that is predicted by the Old Testament. Messiah must die for the sins of his people. Okay, then in verse 4, it says, and that he was buried. Now, this is a key understanding because it was also prophesied in Scripture that Messiah would be buried. And if you remember, Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus, took Jesus' body and buried it in a known tomb. It was Joseph of Arimathea's tomb, to be precise. And so this tomb was known, it was a fact, and it happened. And as you recall in other texts of the Gospel, it had a seal put on it, a Roman seal. And so everybody knew where it was at. It was public knowledge. It wasn't hidden from anyway. So anyway, the idea was this was predicted. So this is the second leg of the stool of the gospel. And then it says, and he, that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And so that's the third leg of the stool on which the gospel stands. And so, those who deny the resurrection deny the scriptures. And incidentally, the death, burial, and resurrection is what we call the full gospel. You'll have these churches that say, we teach the full gospel. Well, the full gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of the Messiah. And it contains the three points that Paul is making here. The Messiah died for our sins, he was buried, rose on the third day. That's the gospel right there. That's the message. And basically, if anyone adds to these three points, any addition to these, it's a false gospel. And so that's what Paul contends with a lot of times to the Galatians, which are adding circumcision. But even today, if anyone adds to this that, well, 
yes, it's a death, burial, and resurrection of Messiah, but you have to do these other things. That's a false gospel. And so anyway, that's the pure and simple gospel. The fact that he rose again on the third day, according to the scriptures, is seen all over the Old Testament. The scriptures predicted that the Messiah would suffer, die, and be buried and raised from the dead. Passages like Psalm 16 talk about how God wouldn't abandon the Messiah's soul to Hades, nor allow Messiah's body to see decay. Though that was true. Other passages refer to his death and resurrection. As you can see in Psalm 22, it talks about his death, but it talks about him being alive again. And in Isaiah 53, it talks about his suffering and death, but it also talks about him being alive again. If you look at the typology in Jonah's experience, Jonah died and came back to life. And that's what Jesus said would be the sign of Jonah, the death, burial, and resurrection. Then even Jesus himself predicted on a number of occasions in the Gospels that he would be killed and raised up on the third day. So it's all over predictive prophecy. So since the scriptures are accurate on hundreds of other prophecies, and since Jesus himself is obviously not known to lie, these prophecies lend weight to the fact of the resurrection. This fact of history was not created after the fact as some type of conspiracy by a bunch of delusioned followers who suffered from mass uh, hallucinations or kind of wishful thinking and creating a, a whole new religion based on a lie. No, the death and resurrection of Jesus was in accord to God's eternal plan outlined and prophesied in the scriptures. So this is another piece of evidence that Paul is trying to hand down to the Corinth church, that this was all predicted thousands of years before it happened. And that proves that God was involved in the writing of the scripture. He is the only one, God is the only one that is omniscient and can tell us what's going to happen in the future. And he did in the Old Testament, particularly about the resurrection. So the scriptures are inspired by God. And what was predicted did come true. See, the false religions of the world, the secularists, the postmodernists, the cults, the agnostics, the atheists, all have to contend with predictive prophecy. Of all the other religions out in the world, no religion has predictive prophecy that has come true. They might predict things, but nothing's ever came true. And in Christianity, predictive prophecy shows that God is behind the scriptures. So, the scriptures and predictive prophecy lend support that this event happened. So that's the first body of evidence that Paul gives. Now Paul then goes into a second body of evidence in this passage, and he goes into the historical testimony of the eyewitnesses. And this is big for a court of law and how we do things even today. So he's going to give verification of the resurrection by eyewitnesses that are alive during his period of time when he writes this. So in verse 5, it's going to say this, And that he was seen by Cephas, or that's Peter, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. So he's saying 500 saw him at once, some have passed away, but most of them are still alive. And then he goes into verse 7. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Verse 8. Then last of all, he was seen by me also as one born out of due time. So Paul says, I'm the last one that saw him in that sense. And the idea was that he was born out of due time. It's the term in Greek refers to a miscarriage. That Paul wasn't with the apostles during the ministry of our, our Lord. But Paul did see the resurrected Christ and was taught specifically by him himself. So that gave credibility to Paul as being an apostle as well. So anyway, Paul throws himself in there, which is a big piece of evidence. So let's look at the eyewitness testimony that Paul's throwing up there as an apologetic. These eyewitnesses, like the apostles, like the 500, had no expectations of seeing the resurrected Messiah. As you recall in the Gospels, he would tell them, I'm going to die, I'm going to be resurrected, and it just went right over their heads. It totally didn't make sense to them. 
And this has to do with their background in rabbinic school that didn't teach this. So it was all new to them. So none of these followers expected Jesus to resurrect from the dead. None of them did. They had, that was not a concept for them, even though it was in the scriptures. They were taught wrongly by the rabbis. So there was no expectation of that. So it wasn't, you know, uh, wishful thinking or whatnot. But anyway, over 500 people or, and, other, and other people like the disciples, the two on the road to Emmaus, different times, different places, within a 40-day time span. And then all of a sudden, all the appearances abruptly stop after 40 days. When you have this many people seeing things at different times, different places, and just in simply a 40-day period, and then they stop, that testifies to this not being some psychological wishful thinking or an hallucination. Hallucinations do not happen to 500 people at once. They happen to individuals, and they happen for a very long time many times. So this goes against the idea that they're all hallucinating. So Paul is bringing this out. Furthermore, if you look at the character of these people that saw him, they're not evil people. They're extremely moral people. And so that gives credence that they didn't lie about this. And by the way, how could they have lied about this? Let's say they said, okay, we're going to make up a false religion. Eventually, one of the 500 would have leaked information. They would have leaked that this is a conspiracy. This is all made up. None of them did that. So this goes past anyone saying, well, they just made this up and they all held together the lie. That doesn't work like that. You see even today in Washington, how many people leak information that's supposed to be private? It happens all the time. But if they made this up, no one leaked? That doesn't make sense. So the resurrection did happen. They did see it. And this was not a massive conspiracy. It's just not plausible to think this was a conspiracy. Therefore, it's a historical fact that the Messiah died, buried, and was resurrected and had post-resurrection experiences to people to prove that he had risen from the dead. And then this supports Messiah's promise that anyone who believes in him will be given eternal life. And the opposite is true. If the resurrection didn't happen, and there were not all these eyewitnesses, and this, didn't, you know, this was all fabricated, then Messiah's offer of eternal life is meaningless. Okay, that, and Paul is going to get to that point. So now Paul moves into the third body of evidence. And the third body of evidence is a changed life for not only the disciples, but also the Apostle Paul as well. And he is a major point of evidence. He says in verse 9, For I am the least of the apostles, whom am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church. Paul, even though he knew he had been forgiven, obviously, felt bad about this. But he is using this evidence of his changed life to point this out to the Corinth church. As you know, Paul was becoming a well-known figure in Judaism. He was respected, and he was seeking out to stamp out Christianity. In his mind, Christianity was a cult, a false religion. And so he had been one of the leading persecutors of the fledgling church. If you recall, he held the garments of those who stoned Stephen. And he said in Galatians that he persecuted the church beyond measure and tried to destroy it. I mean, this guy was a maniac. He was going after to persecute the church and wipe it completely out. And that was his mission. In Galatians 1, Paul also recounts that he was exceedingly zealous for the traditions of his fathers, talking about rabbinic Judaism, beyond any of his contemporaries. So basically he was saying there's no, no one more zealous for rabbinic Judaism than me, and that's why he was trying to stamp it out, even though he was wrong. So Paul's point is the point of evidence of a changed life. This man was the main leader and persecutor of the early church. And in one day, he changes and becomes a champion for the church, becomes the main guy that 
takes the gospel out? That doesn't make sense. Other than a proof of a changed life is a piece of evidence that something happened to him. And we know what happened to him. He had the experience of seeing Jesus on the road to Damascus, and that changed everything for him. And there's no other explanation that's viable for Paul's conversion other than the truth of it. You don't go from a persecutor to a supporter overnight like that. That just doesn't happen. There's no other way to explain it. And that goes for you and I, if you think about this. Our own personal testimony of our conversion is evidence to others that something happened to us, something changed us, and that cannot be denied. When people see our lives, we, they say, you're not how you used to be in high school or in your 20s or 30s or whatever it might be. You're not that same person. What happened to you? Well, Jesus changed my life. And that's the same piece of evidence we all have. That's why our testimonies are so important when we talk to people about Christ. You have to talk about how he changed your life, how you see the world differently now. We're not that same person. And that's what Paul was trying to point out to the Corinth church. So at the end, even if they hear your testimony, they see, or they see the evidence of Paul's testimony, all people can do, they can't deny it. They just simply have to either ignore it or they have to suppress it. But they cannot deny a changed life. Verse 10, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. So Paul points out that it was the grace of God that actually changed him. And obviously this grace is not empty or fruitless. It produces something in Paul. And obviously going beyond Paul, look at the transformation of the disciples. From dejected, fearful, to bold and courageous and champions of the faith, just like the Apostle Paul. Not afraid of the Sanhedrin or the Romans. Not afraid of persecution. And they had a willingness to die for that which they believed. Well, people might come back and say to us, well, you know, every religion has people that will die for their faith. It's true in one sense. But we're talking about eyewitnesses who knew whether it was true or not. If they had made it up, don't you think when their head was on the chopping block, they would have said, hey, game over. I'm just only getting, I don't want to die for something I know to be a lie. It would not make any sense for someone to die for that which they know to be false. And that's the difference between someone now who dies for their faith, like a Muslim blowing themselves up in a jihad, versus an eyewitness who was there and could verify things. So when you see the Apostle Paul, when you see the disciples, when you see the 500 and the early church, their lives were radically transformed. And when they made this transformation because of faith in Messiah, they were cut off from society. It wasn't like their lives got easier. Every one of them got cut off from the synagogue, which meant no one would do business with you. No one do, would do business transactions. They all had to clump up together and support each other. That's why you see in Acts them selling their properties and then giving that to each other in the early church because they had been cut off from the synagogue. Do you remember Nicodemus? Nicodemus was a wealthy man. He was in the Sanhedrin and he was the head of uh, one of the synagogues. Well, that wealth dwindled. By the time Nicodemus dies, he dies as a pauper. He dies without any money because he had been cut off. So these people paid an awful price. And if they knew it was a lie, why would they do that? Why would they be willing to die? Why would they be willing to be cut off from society? Does not make sense. But it is a powerful witness that something happened and it was the resurrection. Another evidence I want to show you that more contemporary is of a changed life, obviously, is by a man by the name of Dr. Simon Greenleaf. You may not have ever heard about him. He lived from 1783 to 1853. Dr. Simon Greenleaf was an eminent lawyer, and he was the founding father of Harvard Law School. He was the Royale Professor of Harvard Law. And he basically laid the foundations for our basis for evidence now in state and federal rules for evidence. He also wrote uh, the seminal work of modern legal apologetics that we use today. And so he wrote a book called The Testimony of the Evangelists. And the reason he wrote this book comes to the story about this man, about a changed life. 
Professor Greenleaf at Harvard, he was a Jewish man who was an atheist. He made fun of the Christian students there at Harvard Law School. He spoke openly and often in the classroom about how the resurrection of Jesus Christ was a made-up fairy tale, a hoax that could only be believed by ignorant, enlightened fools. Well, one day, his students in his class challenged him to apply the rules from his previously defined atheistic legal writings to the resurrection account. Again, this is the expert on legal evidences. This is the guy we use today. His, his, the way he uses legal evidence is what we use today in a court of law. Okay? So they said, apply that to the resurrection. Let's see what you come up with. Well, he took on the challenge and he started prodding, started researching. And he accepted that challenge and set out to disprove Jesus' resurrection. However, Greenleaf was stunned when he got into this by the powerful evidence that Jesus had indeed risen from the tomb. He could not explain away the evidence surrounding the events. And there's all kinds of evidence that we're not going to be able to go into today. But the guards, the eyewitness accounts, the women being the first to see the resurrected Christ. How the gospel painted the disciples in a bad light for not believing. And then the appearances over 40 days. And the dramatic change in Jesus' disciples and their subsequent willingness to suffer and die for the belief that Jesus had risen. So check this out. In a shocking reversal... Greenleaf came back to his class after doing all this research and said he accepted Jesus as his Lord and Savior because Jesus' resurrection is the best explanation of what all of the evidence pointed to. He then became a Christian and wrote his apologetic masterpiece, The Testimony of the Evangelist, that you can still get today. What's the point? The evidence of Christ's resurrection is so overwhelming it leaves no one with any choice other than you either believe he was resurrected or you deny it. But you cannot deny the evidence because when you examine it and just follow where the evidence leads, the evidence says he resurrected from the dead. So skeptics have to deal with changed lives, not only the Apostle Paul, the disciples, and you and I. They just can't explain it away. They either have to accept it or reject it. That's the only option they really have at this point. Let's return back to the scriptures. In verse 12, Paul goes on and says, Now if Christ is preached, he has been raised from the dead. How do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? So now we're going to get into the problem that they were having. And obviously, the resurrection of Christ must be believed, taught, and proclaimed. And we're talking about a physical resurrection, not a spiritual resurrection of the Messiah. It is a physical resurrection. Well, to get down into the weeds of what was happening, there were some in the Corinth church that they were, weren't outright rejecting the resurrection of the Messiah, but in their minds, they thought this was unique to him. But there were some obviously believing that there's no such resurrection from the dead for humans, for the rest of us, for other believers. And Paul points out the problem with this error. And basically he says that uh, he's going to, point out that denial of the physical resurrection of the dead implies denying Christ's physical resurrection too. And there may be a hint there that there's some Greek philosophy that's bleeding into the Corinth church and they're, they're merging this and synchronizing this with Christian theology. And it's a pretty good bet that they were doing that. They had a lot of carryover. And you've got to remember, the Corinth church is very immature, they just simply couldn't fathom they themselves being physically resurrected. They also couldn't fathom even God taking on human nature, which included a physical body. This might have seemed odd to them. This went against the grain of Greek religion. And this is where sometimes they could have believed that really the body was just simply an illusion and that him dying on a cross was an illusion because he really wasn't physical, but he seemed to be physical because they, they couldn't hardly grasp that God would become a man. So it was very difficult for the Corinth church. Again, we don't know a lot of their mindset, but it definitely reflects a Hellenistic worldview that's being infused into Christianity at this point. So Paul is going to point out then the logical problems that follow. So in verse 13, 
he points this out. But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. Paul then goes on to show them the problem that the two are linked together and you cannot separate the two. If you believe Christ raised from the dead, you have to believe that believers will be raised from the dead physically as well. In verse 14, it says, And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. The idea of preaching would be empty is the idea without meaning. It has no content to it. And the Corinth's faith would be in vain. And the idea in the Greek is it's empty without meaning also. So if they didn't believe that believers were raised from the dead, Paul's point is that's linked to the Messiah's physical resurrection. So if you believe this, you have to believe this, uh, that Messiah didn't resurrect from the dead. And then he points this out, that if Messiah was never physically resurrected and stayed dead in the grave, and only his soul went on, then us talking about salvation doesn't go past the grave to eternal life, is his point. These are the implications of not believing this, he said. So our preaching about Christ would be nullified by the reality that there's no hope past this life, is what Paul's point is. Our whole theology would be at stake and be ruined if we didn't believe in a physical resurrection. There would be no power in the gospel if Christ is not raised. Christianity would simply be a religion of morals and maybe wisdom and platitudes. It would become powerless to deliver anybody from sin. This is why Paul said he was not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power to deliver believers. So now let's look at verse 15, some more implications. Yes, and we are are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ. We are witnesses of his death and resurrection, whom he did not raise up if, in fact, the dead did not rise. So the point that Paul's trying to make is, look, if you don't believe the dead are raised, he's not risen either. And there's implications behind that. Paul and the other ones who preached this message of the physical resurrection of the Messiah are a bunch of liars, if this is not true. And Paul's trying to point out, all the New Testament writers would be lying if Christ is not raised from the dead. It'd make them all false teachers, all false prophets, peddling false teachings, and then they would be condemned to hell because of practicing false teachings and, and spreading these lies. So he, the implications then is the Bible couldn't even be trusted in all matters. It would be discredited by its writers who are a bunch of liars because they're just making up stuff, right? So throughout the Bible, if Christ is not resurrected, it's not even worth having. That's Paul's implications uh, to them saying, if you don't believe in the resurrection, this is your guys' problem. And then in verse 16, he says this, for if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. The idea is this, faith is only as good as the object in which it is placed into. And since the object, Jesus rising from the dead, didn't occur in their minds, then we have no faith. Our faith is empty. What that means is that it would be a faith that has no eternal results. It would only produce temporary results here and now. And then when we died, that would be it. We would simply end. That's it. Therefore, Paul explains that the result of this would be that our faith is useless, fruitless, and to no effect if the Messiah did not rise from the dead. We live for that which was empty, is his point. We believe for that which was empty. We sacrifice for that which was empty. And we died for nothing, is the implication that Paul is trying to make if the resurrection didn't occur. So in essence our faith would be fruitless for eternal life. There's nothing past that. And the idea is that it would, only produce uh, it would only produce results in this life, but not for the next. So it would be all in vain. It would be a fruitless life. There was nothing behind it. And that's the idea that Paul's trying to get across to them. And then one more other issue that he brings up. And the other result of not believing in the resurrection, he goes, the implication would be, you are still in your sins. 
That's the other passage. You are still in your sins. This would result in every human being still being in their sins if the resurrection of Jesus Christ didn't happen. Because the resurrection of Christ means forgiveness of the believer's sins. The resurrection proved that Jesus was the Son of God and it verified everything he said. And thirdly, the resurrection was the declaration of the Father that the Messiah met all the requirements of the law of Moses. It was God's stamp of approval, so to speak. So the resurrection proves our justification because our justification has been accomplished by Messiah's sacrifice and death. And on the basis of that accomplishment, God raised him from the dead to verify that we have been justified by our faith in Jesus. So basically, the resurrection of the Messiah is God verifying that the sacrifice was accepted by God. If he didn't physically rise from the dead, we are still in our sins. It, that sacrifice was not accepted. And as you know, God is righteous and holy. And he cannot accept us into his presence if we have sinned. Christ died on the cross as a substitute for our sins, as you know. So if he is not risen from the dead, then his death is no different than any other death. And faith in him is useless. Jesus' death on the cross provided the atonement for our sin. And by his resurrection, Messiah then could provide to us the power over sin, the forgiveness of sin, and the guarantee of power for Christian service to fulfill our calling and the Great Commission. So, using the Corinth's logic and taking it out to its logical conclusion, Paul states that we all would still be in our sins if he had not risen from the dead. Therefore, we would not receive forgiveness for our sins, and we would go to the lake of fire eventually. That's it. That's all we would have left. Our bodies would stay in the ground, and our soul would be thrown into the lake of fire, if that's the case. Again, he's using their logic and taking it out to the logical extension. Then in verse 18, he, he says this, Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. He, the idea is this, that it would affect people's future hope after the grave. There would be no ground, he says, for saying that we would go to heaven when we die or for our believing loved ones that they're in heaven either. We couldn't say those kinds of things. So if, if, if Christ is not raised, then we're all going to the lake of fire. No one's going to heaven. No one's going to paradise. And by the way, there's no giving the saints a glorified body either if he's not raised. Furthermore, the resurrection then guarantees the believer's individual resurrection as well. And he's trying to uplift them. He's going to talk about that later on in, in 1 Corinthians 15. He actually goes into explaining what the resurrection body looks like and acts like and is. But suffice it to say, he says, if he didn't rise, you're not rising either. So now let's go to verse 19. If in this life, he says, only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiful. And, it's, and the idea is, this is ridiculous. This is what, what, what are we doing? We're fools. We're just simply fools if Christ didn't raise from the dead. And living believers who have placed their hope in Christ would be considered people to be pitied who did this. The only reason he went to the cross is because that is the only way the justice and righteousness of God could be satisfied. It is the only way sinful people can be saved. If Jesus didn't die on the cross for our sins and rise on the third day triumphantly over the forces of evil and death, then there's no hope. And so, we're to be pitied. People should feel sorry for us for believing in something that's not true, that we're just being led astray by a bunch of liars. I know it sounds harsh, but Paul's trying to point out the logical extension of not believing in the resurrection. The gospel would be worthless. Believing, believing in Jesus would be worthless. Spiritual growth would be worthless. There's, no, there's nothing beyond the grave. You might as well be an atheist. Our destiny would be just simply damnation. But then in, in verse 32, let's jump to verse 32. He says this, If the dead do not rise, 
Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. In other words, if the resurrection didn't happen, we are living the wrong lifestyle. We are structuring our lives wrong. We shouldn't be structuring our lives to the conformity of the Messiah. There's no benefit in that, he's saying. What's the point of living the Christian life? What's the point of obedience? It's simply ridiculous. If there's not a resurrection, and this is all made up, this is a joke, then by all means, go live by the Epicurean philosophy of life. Self-absorbed life, selfish life, bent on making one feel good. Or live like a hedonist, living for pleasure, because you only go around the world once. Hedonism is the only thing that makes sense to the Apostle Paul. So again, he's taking it out to its logical conclusion. The Greek historian Herodotus tells of an interesting custom of the Egyptians who did live for pleasure and hedonism and whatnot. He says, in the social meetings among the rich, when the banquet was ended in these Egyptian banquets, a servant would often carry around among the guests a coffin in which was a wooden image of a corpse carved and painted to resemble a dead person as nearly as, as possible. The servant would show it to each of the guests and would say, gaze here, drink and be merry, for when you die, such you shall be. And that's Paul's point, basically, is that's how you would live, like a hedonistic, materialistic, worldly individual if the resurrection didn't happen. That would be the lifestyle you and I would pick. But it did happen. That's the truth of the matter. The resurrection did happen, and we are blessed because of it with eternal life. And Paul, in this chapter, goes into a special event that's for his church. It's called the rapture. We don't have time to go into it, but he, ex he explains it. I tell you a mystery. And, and he, that mystery is the rapture of the church. That we who are, uh, the dead will rise first, and then we who are alive will be uh, raptured after them in the resurrection. And so that's a special blessing he gives. Uh, because Christ was resurrect resurrected, we too will be resurrected in the rapture. And that is a great truth. And every day we draw closer and closer. As you and I both look at the signs of the times, we're getting closer and closer. So again, continue to look for the Lord's return. That's one of the blessings of, of what we have in Christ. So let's look now at the application that Paul gave us. Now again, I'm skipping to verse 58 because this is a very long chapter and I'm trying to get as much in as I can in the time frame that we have. But Paul actually gives an application about this. So obviously, his point is to the Corinth church, you're believing wrong and your beliefs are leading to other theological problems. And those theological problems that you're creating are going to factor into your behavior, is what he's saying. So think about this. Follow the trail here. If they don't believe the resurrection of the dead is going to happen, where we're physically going to be resurrected, then he says it's linked to you not believing in the resurrection of the Messiah. Hence, if Jesus is not resurrected, then you guys, no wonder you're leading an immoral lifestyle. No wonder you're living hedonistically. Because if you recall, if you look to the pages of 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, that is a church that's gone mad. They're out of control. They are carnal. They're in sexual immorality. They do all kinds of crazy stuff. And so it does lend support that their behavior, that he's always trying to correct with the Corinth church, is related to their false beliefs. And don't ever forget that principle. What you believe comes out in your behavior. And so Paul is saying, you guys have misstepped your behavior because you misstep in theology. So what you have to do is correct the theology first, and then the behavior will follow. So that's what Paul's trying to do. So the application then comes into this. In verse 58, he says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, he still calls them brethren. They're not, they're not unsaved, even though they have these false views, okay? Be steadfast, he says. Being steadfast means be settled in your doctrine. Be firmly established in your doctrine. Because right now, they're not being. And he goes, it be immovable. The idea, again, it's the same idea of doctrine, but you can't be moved in your doctrine because you know your doctrine and you're solid as a rock. And this is, comes from proper study, proper theology, 
proper time of looking into this in discipleship. So he says, I encourage you to get up to speed in your discipleship with knowing theology, knowing the word of God, and that will make you steadfast and immovable. Because if you don't know your theology, you'll be pushed around by every wind and false doctrine that blows you around. You're going to be led astray by your emotions, your false teachings, false teachers. You're going to be led astray by your desires and your wants and your misunderstandings of Scripture. And again, you will be susceptible to apostasy like they are. They don't believe in the resurrection of believers. That was their problem. And so he's, trying, he's saying, get up on your theology, get established there so you don't fall for everything. And then he goes on to the application, a second part of the application. He says, always abounding in the work of the Lord. And the idea of abounding in the work of the Lord is this. It carries the idea of going the second mile in your discipleship, in your service to the Lord. See, serving the Lord should come as a sacrifice. We don't serve the Lord when it's convenient for our schedule. So he uses this word abounding. And it carries the idea that our service to the Lord must go beyond. and must be sacrificial. And you must go beyond our duty. So abounding means to exceed that which is our duty. It means overdoing something. Okay? So most people think, being a Christian, that, they're, that going to church, reading their Bible, and praying, that they're going to be rewarded for that. And that's not true. That's our duty. Our duty is to do those things. You get rewarded for going the second mile. You get rewarded if you sacrifice. You get rewarded if you overdo things for the Lord. That's what he's talking about. And then he goes on to say, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. So Paul goes on to make the point that the resurrection of Christ should reprioritize our lives here and now in terms of service for him, our labor for the Lord. And this is not a time, especially in the days we live in, to take it easy spiritually. It is a time to get to work on things that are important. Not for, it's, this time is not for us, per se. It's for the Lord. It's important to the Lord that we get about his business. And Paul is saying we should be on the side of doing more for the Lord, not finding less to do for the Lord. The other thing, too, is some believers fill up their lives with other priorities and things they're doing, and it distracts them and makes them do less for the Lord. Stats will show. I hate to be the bearer of, of, of bad news. Stats show that people put their kids before the Lord. People put their families before the Lord. It is a major problem in American Christianity. They will do what they want to do according to the kids' schedule not what they should do as a priority for, their, for the Lord. And that distracts them. That keeps them from serving. And again, we face an, a, an incredible temptation here in America. It's the idol of making other things the priority that take us away from the Lord. So Paul's point is this. Due to the resurrection, he says, what we do for the Lord obviously matters. We should do it abundantly, overdo it, because we will be rewarded. Rewards are for those who go beyond the call of duty. And so we should labor because everything we do matters. Christ said it himself, you give a cup of cold water to another servant, you're going to have a major reward for that. So nothing we do for the Lord is trivial. Everything we do is storing up treasures in heaven. And he says, and serving the Lord is not in vain. Why does he say that? It's because we'll, we will be rewarded at the Bema seat. That's where we will get our rewards for what we did for the Lord. And at that Bema seat, he will judge us on how we served him. Not how we served ourselves, but how we served him. And that's where our rewards will come from. And then, obviously, it says in the scriptures, we will constantly be taking off our crowns and casting those crowns that he rewards us for before him every time we worship him. To give him thanks for the gracious gifts that he gave us to serve him, and the power he provides that allowed us to serve him. So with the resurrection as a backdrop in this application, Paul is saying, because there's a body of truth called the resurrection, and it did happen, it should motivate the believer to serve the Lord in a greater capacity. The resurrection secured our salvation. It proved that atonement had been made. And 
it tells us we have eternal life and we go beyond the grave. Our loved ones that we have buried that knew the Lord, we will see them again. We will see them in heaven. They will be glorified as well in a new body and we will be given the new body. With all of that that has been lavished on us by the resurrection, by Christ rising from the dead, Paul's point is, shouldn't we serve him in a greater capacity, knowing even in our service, he will reward us. The Lord has done so much for us, so much so that we can never repay him, obviously. And so is it too much for him to ask us in these last days of the church to serve him at a greater capacity, to go the second mile now? I read an interesting story this week, gives kind of a principle of this. Edwin M. Statton, this is in the 1800s. This was a guy who, went, who ran roughshod over Abraham Lincoln in a law case. Well, anyway, he was very vindictive to Abraham Lincoln during this time and didn't like him and whatnot. But as you know, the rest of the story, Lincoln became president of the United States. And guess who Lincoln invited to be the Secretary of War? Edwin Stanton. Well, they sent a courier to Stanton, and the courier informed him of this. And when Stanton learned of this, he was simply overwhelmed. He had tears in his eyes, and obviously he accepted the honor, but he was very humbled by this. He said to the courier, tell Mr. Lincoln that such magnanimity will make me work with him as a man who has, ne has never been served before. And the idea was he would serve him the rest of his life because of that. And the same is true with us. The doctrine of the resurrection inspires us as believers to serve Christ like no one has ever served him before. And that's our application. Thanks for downloading the Anchor Podcast. We hope this study was a blessing to you. Support for this podcast comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Also, check out our YouTube channel, Rock Harbor Church Prophecy Update, where we focus on signs of the times and present a wide range of sermons and discipleship lessons. So until next time, keep looking up, for our redemption draws near.